0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, we're talking to Tressie McMillan-Cottom, the author of Thick and Other Essays, which is out now from the new press.
1: Kendra, I, this, this is autumn. one of like the best books I've read all year, and it's only March when we're recording this.
0: It is absolutely fabulous uh I've read several essays in both print and audio because they're that amazing and I may have gone through like a half stack of tabs (laughs) well and Josh and I walked to dinner one night and it was like a 30
1: minute walk and all of dinner and the 30 minute walk back we talked about this book and I'm like so
0: oh my goodness it's one of those books I want to buy and give to everyone I see (laughs) yeah it is just fabulous and we are so excited that Dressy was up for coming on the podcast and talking to us. Uh, she is such one of the most brilliant women, as like as humanly possible basically. So smart. Um, and her bio says that she's been called one of the most exciting public intellectuals and voices of working today. She's been published in so many different publications, you can't even start to talk about them. Um, and in her latest book, which is Thick and Other Essays, the one that she's talking about today, uh, she draws on 10 years of writing for the public on many of our society's most pressing fault lines. And so uh, she now lives in Richmond, Virginia, where she is a professor. And this she's just fabulous. That really should be the end <laughs> of the bio. And just fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, we could have talked to Tressie for
1: all day long, easily, so without further ado, here's our discussion with Tressie McMillan-Cottom about Thick and other essays.
0: Well, Tressie, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you on. Well, thank you very much for having me. Kendra was the
1: first one to introduce me to your essay collection, and I, I just loved it so much. It was such a delight to read. Well, thank
2: you very much. I can't say it was a delight to write, but it is delightful to hear that people enjoyed reading it. That part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we I had heard about your book and I believe that your publisher sent uh, us a copy and then I saw your interview with Trevor Noah which was just I felt like who needs a book trailer when you have that, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Trevor, he is he is wonderful. He's lovely. Yeah, we had a good time. And I hope it came through. But, yeah, we have a great time. It really is. And uh, speaking with him is um, uh, rarely like your typical interview when you do these things. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun.
1: Well, before we get into talking about your book in detail, um, for our listeners who have not yet read your essay collection, could you tell them a little bit about what it's about?
2: At its simplest, the uh, essay collection is sort of an invitation for people who may not be Black women to take seriously Black women's understanding of the world. And then each essay in its own way kind of takes a thin intersection of life, uh, media, culture, politics, um, and invites people to see how much of what they think they know could sort of be reimagined when they do that. Um, so, a bit of a defamiliarization process for some readers. And then for Black women who read the book, I wanted them to uh, see something that resonated with their understanding of the world, of um, not just our everyday lives, which, you know, to some extent, I think people are willing to understand us as experts on our everyday lives. But I also really wanted to draw connections between how we experience the world and then these bigger questions about how the world works. So what we might call like the big macro questions, politics and capitalism and markets and all of that kind of stuff, right? I wanted us to reimagine those things by putting the experiences of black women at the center and to show that it is not nearly as uncomfortable or certainly not as uh, dangerous uh, for people to do so. and That in fact, it is a very valuable way to think about um, all of these important things that shape the way we live every day.
0: And I really appreciated the way that you, like you said, you took different slices of different topics and, you know, put Black women at the center. And one of the things that I think was really helpful when you set up the collection was in your title essay thick uh you, you talk mm-hmm. about your own writing style and how a lot of people thought it was too readable to be academic or too deep to be popular yeah, right. there's a quote that you said i wanted to create something mean of, meaningful that sounded not only like me but like all of me it was too thick and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this concept of thick that you used mm-hmm. in that essay and how mm-hmm. it reflects in the rest of the collection
2: yeah, so it's you know it's uh, interesting. I wrote that essay last <laughs> of the collection, and in many ways, n- none of the collection made sense until it was ri- written. And so, in retrospect, I have no idea how we ever put the volume together. Um, <laughs> ideally, right, I would have I think had that conversation with myself far earlier. But I remember sitting down to read it and thinking, oh yes, this is it exactly. And it was, um, and it's exactly that, right? So a title essay for this type of collection is supposed to set the stage. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're talking about so many disparate topics, you know, I moved from, my goodness, from like, you know, Miley Cyrus to David Brooks. And you had to have some thread to pull that together. And I intuitively always felt there was a thread, if nothing else, it was my voice, right? Um, and my way of uh, looking at the world. But it needed to be articulated. And I remember writing, you know, getting about halfway through a draft of that, what is now the title essay. And using the word "thick" somehow, and going, and just knew that 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 was it. That it is a call in to people to not reject sort of surface understanding because there's some value to you know when we're all you know novices to an idea um, at some point in our lives, but to say you know. What happens when it's time to graduate to thinking about things with some compl- complexity, with some nuance? So, on one level, thick was a way of saying, you know, a rejection of the idea of sort of thin thinking and mm-hmm. thinking and talking and sound bites, right? And what happens when we move beyond that? And then thick was this play on quite literally how I am embodied, right? How I have moved through the world in my physical body, which you know it, it is suspended somewhere between sort of the white feminine beauty ideal and the black feminine beauty ideal of being, you know, um, too expansive, too big in some ways, and not big enough in other ways, and being what we call colloquially thick, then which I am. And I, you know, tell a story about one of many men who has described me as such um, in the book. And, and so, you know, I'm also playing on that a lot of how we experience the world is just about the bodies we're in. And that's a calling, you know, and so that calls to that. And then on the third level, thick responds to Um, My academic training as a sociologist, which borrows from the anthropologist, this idea called thick ethnography, which was this idea that if we do it really well, if we capture the details and the nuances of people's lives and write thickly, is what they call it, a thick description of people's world, that people who do not share those people's culture and experiences can you know to some extent not vicariously live their experience but can better understand the world through someone else's eyes and so thick was about a philosophy it was a, it's about a body and it is about a way of thinking and talking about really hard problems and each of the essays i hope did those you know is they start often each essay starts with who I am and, you know, who I, um, what I embody, what history comes with me, what ideas, and then moves out to the big story of, okay, what does that tell us, though, about more than just me? And then tries to zoom back down to the complexity of, okay, now how do we get comfortable Having a challenging conversation um, that requires us to be nuanced. And so I think it's operating on those um, three levels. And, and I did, after I wrote the essay, you know, I went back through and I looked for the threads throughout the work and tightened them up and connected them and thought, yeah, I mean, whether I had ever articulated it from the beginning, that was clearly what I was doing because it was always there. It's there in everything I've written.
1: That thought of, like, moving below sound bites was definitely something that I appreciated about your essays, and even when I said, like, it was a delight to read, I'm in, like, like, it challenged me. Like, I talked to my spouse for, I think, six hours nonstop about this book, oh, it was well, like... One, your poor spouse, but thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it was good for both of us. Like, we had a wonderful, like, deep conversation about all kinds of things, and, like, Josh, I never thought of it this way. Let's talk about this kind of a thing. But one of the things you talk about, too, is about being a black female academic and a writer. And you kind of talk about the challenges about that and how you were told once that you need to stop writing so much because people are using you. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what she meant by that and perhaps like the struggles facing black women in academia?
2: Yeah. You know, so the thing about being an academic is the entire process is designed to train you to be an expert, right? Um, Mm -hmm. A really small expert, lowercase e, I should say, because we are not, contrary to how some of my uh, colleagues in the public domain represent ourselves, not experts on everything. Um, We are actually supposed to become experts on a very small thing. And, you know, you read everything about it. You explore everything about this topic. And if you're so fortunate. You get the opportunity to study that for a very long time, which very few people, you know, get that kind of opportunity um, in uh, today's society. And so, you know, it's about becoming an expert. The problem that Black women have is that there is an entire historical and contemporary cultural ideology that says Black women can never be experts. And so when you embody or try to embody being both a Black woman and being a expert in the you know western u.s western understanding of the word there's always a conflict now not necessarily for the person embodying it but certainly for the world right so much of me moving through the world is me watching in real time people struggle with the idea that they are supposed to both yield to my expertise but somehow also you know be my superior Right, and they struggle with trying to keep you in the spot of being both a subordinate and an expert. And so, yeah, my you know this very senior black woman scholar, you know, walks up to me one day in a conference hall and says to me, you know, kind of wags a finger at me and you know, very aggressively tells me that you know I needed to stop writing because I was writing for tons of public outlets while I was doing my dissertation. Um, you know, because they're using you. And at the time, now I'll be real, I'm a human, and I remember thinking that she was just attacking me for no reason, you know? And it was with some distance and maybe hopefully some maturity and some generosity over time. I think what I really understand it as is that she really was trying to read the world back to me. She really did think that I didn't know that that was happening. She didn't think I understood that the world wasn't necessarily reading me as an expert. They were instead reading me as, you know, the dreaded, first person essayists, like many women writers are sort of, you know, are really confined to this idea. The only thing we're allowed to speak about unchallenged anyway um, are our own lives. And even then there can be lots of challenge um, to our authority. But she was like, you know, if people come to understand you as a person who can only talk about themselves, they're never going to trust you as an expert in this thing that you have invested a lot of time and money in learning how to become. And so she thought I didn't understand the difference is what I think was happening. And then too, I think there's always, I mean, you know, academics is like almost any other profession where the stakes are really high. And that is the case for us right now is a very competitive profession. It's shrinking like many other, you know, quote unquote, good professions are shrinking. And there was a little bit of professional, competition at play. I think when other academics, well, she's not the only one who's ever said some version of that to me, but who do think that there's something inherently wrong with speaking to the public instead of speaking to our little small world about our small expertise. And so that's always a challenge. I think there's an extra challenge because I'm a Black woman doing it, right? So even my colleagues in the profession really struggle with the idea that I am so widely read and cited and identified not just as a writer but as a sociologist. Even they, I think, have some tension with, you know, who should be the legitimate voice of our profession. And I don't think they ever saw me coming. And and to be fair, it probably overwhelmed some people.
0: Yeah. And you talk about how you were published widely and in that situation and how, you know, Uh, Autumn and I met in grad school. And so, you know, we go to conferences and different things. And like you said, it is Mm -hmm. very competitive. And you just want to have published wherever you can because you want that job. Right. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I appreciated about your book was your focus on Black women writers and what that looks like and, and its many facets. And you talk about the personal essay and how it's given many women of color a point of entry into public discourse. And I was wondering if you could talk about what the personal essay has done for black women and what that looks like in today's society. So, uh, you know,
2: again, one of the things, uh, now this is one of those where maybe it's helpful to start, you know, maybe I think more broadly, because I think it's true actually for almost all women that in publishing and in the public sphere, you know, the powers that be, whatever word we like for, you know, the patriarchy, capitalism, uh, whiteness, whatever we kind of want to ascribe to it, you know, quote unquote, the man, there's been way more willingness to allow women or to allow women to speak in the public as long as their audience was confined to other women. Right. What we have a problem with is women moving public discourse in a way that shapes how men see the world. Right. So all right. If you're talking to women, it's all right. If you're talking to your own group. Then for black women, there's the extra burden of that that we're not even supposed to talk to white women. We really are only supposed to speak to our own experiences as black women. And even then, the expertise we're supposed to call on is supposed to be something embodied. Right. And some, you know, and certainly I think sometimes the grimier the details, the better. You know, my friend Roxane Gay likes to say, you know, you don't need to cannibalize your trauma for public audiences. And we were talking about this recently on a panel about what that means. I think there is a market for that cannibalization for all writers right now. I think that's about what the internet has done to publishing. For example, there are just so many outlets And the currency is attention. And we are human beings and drama and trauma, you know, just attracts human attention, right? It's the rubberneck phenomenon is just sort of happening on this big scale. But I think especially for uh, women of color, and I think it's also true, by the way, for queer writers and queer uh, writers of color especially, are really expected to bring and lead with some part of the trauma of being their oppressed selves before they're ever allowed to speak on any other subject. It has, I think, a dual consequence. It is a way to get published. It is not, however, a way to develop, I think, a writing career. And when you're starting out, I don't know that writers understand the difference I don't know uh, if academics understand the difference, that there are ways to be published that will in no way build the platform for like a long term creative career. And for uh, and for, again, women of color and black women especially, the risk is that there are so many outlets who love the kind of trauma that just seems to shape and infuse so much of our lives. So we've just got like an abundance of it to draw from, you know. Um, And there's so many outlets willing to publish that, yet so few outlets willing to invest in Black women writers to become better writers and develop an actual career. And so I've seen the cycles of burnouts, you know, of so many uh, black women and women of color and queer writers who have written that thing or the series of things. And once they have just sort of mined as much of their trauma as possible, we just plug in the next writer. And my question is always like, well, what happened to the last you? Like, where are you? And are they okay? Right. What do you then go build, especially considering how sort of permanent our archives are now? People will always be able to search about the time you were sexually assaulted or molested or abused or beaten, even after you've long gone on and tried to build this thing. And I really worry about that. But it is. Yeah, I think it is a particular risk for black women who are trying to write in these spaces, especially when we, I think, have so much to offer about everything right we, I think we could be talking about economics and environmentalism we could be talking about uh, politics uh federal politics state politics global politics language culture celebrity all kinds of things but to get the chance to write those other things almost every black woman writer i know has had to start by first selling her trauma of being a black woman
1: that's why in your essay girl number six or girl six rather when you're talking about you know this male white male opinion writer for the new york times and how he wrote this essay on deli sandwiches and by the time i got to the end of the essay i was like gosh yeah why do we have to listen to this guy (laughs) talk about deli sandwiches (laughs) oh that's so boring seriously
2: (laughs) talking about talking about it is boring.
1: Right. And some of the examples you gave in that essay, I was like, yes, somebody please write that essay. Like I, I would love to read that. But it's one of those like societal forces that you just don't think to question until someone comes along and says to question it. And I'm, I, so, I'm so glad you did that.
2: Well, thank you. And you know, and that's just the very thing that yeah, I don't think anybody liked that essay about <laughs> deli me. Right. But after that, like nobody at any point in the process stopped and went, Hey, yeah, it's the take for granted that whatever, you know, mild musing that a man wants to have is perfectly fine. Right. He can just muse on anything that women have to just sort of like split ourselves open um, to talk about something that can actually be interesting I mean, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly it, that even when we don't like it, we don't think to question it.
0: And we'll be back with more from our discussion with Tressie mcmillan Cottam after from our sponsor.
1: This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. One of the great things about HelloFresh is that it is so simple. You get seasonal recipes delivered to your door, making delicious meals as simple as possible. Which means that I spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping, which gives me even more time to do what I love, like reading. And another great thing is that all of the meals come together in 30 minutes max, call for less than two pots and pans, and require minimal cleanup. They even have plans to make family dinners fuss-free with picky eater, kid-tested-approved family meal plan recipes. There are three different plans that you can choose from, classic, veggie, and family, and you always have the option to switch between different plans when your tastes or needs change. Let me say that again. There are three different plans you can choose from, classic, veggie, and family, and you always have the option to switch between the plans when your needs or tastes change.
0: So now most people who listen to the podcast know that I am obsessed with cooking. And if I was not a podcast co-host, I would be cooking something somewhere, which is pretty much what I did the other day when I made their chicken cheddar fajitas recipe. You know, uh, the box arrived right at my door. Dylan freaked out and he loved being there as all of the food was open, as corgis are wont to do, and so that evening I made these wonderful chicken cheddar fajitas, and there was a little spice packet, and they had these really easy step-by-step instructions, and I was so impressed with how they broke it down for you, and they also have the allergens listed on all of the ingredients, so if you need to have the sour cream on the side, you can, which I thought was great, and so I made these for Samuel and me, and I absolutely loved it. And I'm just a huge fan.
1: So for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash readingwomen80 and enter readingwomen80. So that's for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash readingwomen80 and enter readingwomen80, which is essentially
0: like receiving eight
1: meals for free.
0: Of course, all of that information will be linked in our show notes. And thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. One of the things that you pointed out about uh, men like that who, who write about jelly sandwiches is that you went on their Twitter and you looked and found like they they really lacked in following on on Twitter. Following you know black women thinkers and just black women in general, um, and you pointed out a lot about what that says about society. so I wanted to ask if you would talk a little bit about that and why it's important for us to pay attention to who the people we follow are and who they're paying attention to. right, and yeah, and you know and it's
2: that was a tough um you know i'm I'm trying to split a very fine hair there on the one hand. I want to be like, yeah, of course, it's just social media, right? And of course, you know, you could use social media for all kinds of outlets. You could use it to follow comic books because your day life as like a neurosurgeon is just super stressful. And so I don't want to, I'm not talking about, you know, generally sort of like rank and file people, although I think there's a lot of benefit for them as well. I think, however, people who shape all of the media we consume deserve an extra level of scrutiny, Right. If you're going to be the guy who gets to tell us about the time you had deli meat, I think it is fair for audiences to go, OK, and who do you read about deli meat? <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. who musings do you follow? Because that's shaping the musings you make us consume. Um, and so, yeah, I look at these guys who are, you know, just notable for being, you know, what we might call, you know, cultural critics at large. Right? They're the people who get called on the television shows and, you know, um, special exposés and articles in newspapers to, you know, weigh in on the thing that we should all care about today. And when you looked at those people and who they consume, by and large, they don't consume black women. They mm-hmm. don't see us not just as peers, but even as adversaries, which is at least a kind of peerage, right? They don't have to engage with us. And them not engaging with us doesn't come with any penalty. Nobody says, you know what? That deli meat guy never references this major book that came out that everybody's talking about. And, oh, yeah, it just happens to have been written, you know, by a woman. Right, nobody says then we shouldn't listen to that guy until he's willing to talk about this really important thing. Right, to be important, men don't have to engage women writ large, and they certainly don't have to engage black women. And I think that there's a couple of things. One, I think it makes just our body politic poor and weaker, uh, and I think it's part of the reason why we have such thin public discourse about so many important topics, but I think it also, one of the things that that kind of person is supposed to do is to train the rest of the public on how to take serious people seriously. So most of us in our daily lives, we work a job, we have a family, we're not sitting around reading the latest top 10 on the New York Times, you know, nonfiction. We're not doing that. We sort of outsource that work to like what I call the professionally smart people. And what professionally smart people are supposed to do is come into our homes and into our lives and say, hey, hey, here's this thing that's important. Or, hey, 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 here's a way for you to understand this experience you may be having out in, you know, in the Midwest where we are not, right? Here's a way to understand the world. And what they're not doing is modeling to people in communities where they are unlikely To have any direct engagement with black women is they're not modeling for them that black women are part of your larger cultural fabric. So then it becomes really easy for somebody to sit in a community of which there are many in our society that are predominantly white and where there are very few black people and to say nothing about my life has anything to do with those people's lives, and people vote that way then, and then they go on to teach their children that way and to let it seep into their daily worldview. Because it says not only do you not have to listen to Black women, but Black women's lives are not bound up in your life. And so, the best parts, I think, of what comes out of like our urban centers that everybody now likes to decry New York and LA and Atlanta and DC and Chicago is that there is some strength in the diversity of thought and of people. um, And it's not being exported to the rest of the country, in part because the media and the culture we export doesn't listen to Black women, even when it's free. Like, Twitter is still free. It's, like, super easy. Mm -hmm. And even when the barrier is that low, professionally smart people don't bother
0: listening to Black women. You mentioned about how there's a lack of... Uh, listening to Black women in society, and I keep thinking about we we really love Desmond Ward here on Reading Women, and how it's very interesting to see people read her work, and how, what their impression of it is. And you know, her she's just so incredibly talented, and I feel like the world would be such a better place if if we allowed you know women from all different backgrounds, but particularly Black women, to speak up, and that we act, you know society actually listened to what they were saying. And I feel like, you know, writers like Justin Ward had made such a difference in in my life. And like, I want to share that with, with others. And I think when you talk about like the seriously smart, it's always like this elitist, like, like group up there, but really the society is made up of such a wide range of people.
2: No, but I also uh, really value Justin's work. And, and I will say this, I think if someone like Jessamine can't be taken seriously at that level, right? There's not a lot of for the rest of us. I mean, think of how supreme, not just talented, but on every of all those other measures of the professionally smart, she also hits all of those. She's well educated, right? She speaks the um, can at least speak the language of power because she so eloquently disassembles it for us, right? If she cannot ascend to that level of you know being thought of as a peer for some of these you know um, public intellectuals, then there's really no hope for the rest of us. I, so yeah, I agree.
1: Speaking of like the public discourse, one of the in your second essay, so the one after thick, um, you talk about your Miley Cyrus essay and how you made a comment about how you weren't beautiful and how, like, you got a lot of comments about that. Isn't so, so weird, in that weird a con- hate mail
2: for? Like, I'm going to hate you and you were beautiful. <laughs> I, I, it's a really perverse <laughs> sort of hate mail.
1: <laughs> so so bizarre. Um, I know. <laughs> but so, like, in this context of, like, public discourse, could you talk a little bit about that essay and about society's perspectives of beauty and especially like black women in beauty.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, it is one of the stranger, uh, and I got to tell you, I mean, I think, God, now that's been. It's hard for me to keep up, but I think it's probably been seven or eight years ago I wrote this essay, um, and I still get the occasional letter. But I think people must assign it in school or something. But it's got a life, and it you know it'll come back around. And I think it's certainly every time Miley Cyrus sort of reinvents herself, it tends to pop back up. Um, And she's in the middle of a reinvention right now, by the way. So it's you know (laughs) again, and and it was at the time when she was you know going through her bad girl phase, and so she's doing all the hip hop affect. Uh, you know, she's not a country girl anymore. You know, somehow, somewhere she moved to, I don't know, Harlem. I don't know what happened. Uh, and so she's doing that performance that lots of pop stars do, especially, I think, when they come from like a Disney-type background like she did. But in doing it, of course, she has to pick up sort of these elements of Black culture and Black affect and all of this. And so she's done this performance. And I write an essay where I really, it's a it's a throwaway line. It was one of those self-evident sort of things that I never in a million years would have imagined upsetting people other than my mother, who people say (laughs) I look just like nobody in the world. I thought would be upset about me just sort of acknowledging what for me was a fact of life. I am not considered beautiful, I'm not beautiful. Right. There is a, you know, there's a, 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 a cultural ideal that we used to say is beauty. And I know I'm not it. No big deal. What, well, was I wrong? Like, like, you know, I mean, I got it from every corner too. So usually my hate mail comes from a very you know specific kind of audience for each piece. And the, no, I got this from everyone and more so than defending Miley Cyrus, which there was some of that, like, you know, I didn't understand youth culture, which I think was a way of calling me old, by the way. Um, and that I had, you know, I just wasn't hip and I just wasn't up on it. There was also embedded in this and how dare you, like, and how dare you? Say that you aren't beautiful, like how dare you? I was like, who are you angry for? You don't know me. So, what was the source of this anger? Why were people so invested in me conforming to the desire to be a certain kind of beautiful? And so the essay was like many years in the making, and it was my first time is sort of like assembling all of my thinking on the bits and pieces of what happened in the aftermath of that Miley Cyrus essay. And I talk about how much we have invested, how political it is for people to not only be beautiful, because that's also, that's important because beautiful has to only allow a certain number of people and certain type of people for it to have its power over us, but also how important it was politically for people to aspire to be beautiful how much hinges on people desiring to be something that by definition they can never control and that most of us, again, by definition can never be. If everybody is beautiful, despite all the platitudes on the t-shirts and the coffee mugs that you can buy at those little shops everywhere in America, right? That says, you know, um, your inside is so beautiful. As nice as that is, right? None of us go to the movies and watch people's insides. <laughs> And it just seems like such a self-evident, everyday thing to comment upon. Like, who could disagree? On the one hand, we're steeped in celebrity culture, where by now, I mean, we've got studies that girls as young as seven and eight years old identify and over-identify with a celebrity culture of beautification that says there is, you know, there is one of four ways to be a woman and this is it. When we know that girls are not just having eating disorders, but supreme sort of mental anxiety and mental health issues because of it, at the time when we know that beauty is not just now about what you look like, but it's about how the world's going to treat you, what Mm -hmm. kind of jobs you're going to get in a culture where everything we now do has a picture attached. LinkedIn, your work profile. I recently switched to a new doctor, and the first thing they sent me was a link to set up my health profile, and it wanted a picture of me. Hmm. Right? If our pictures didn't matter, <laughs> then why do we attach them to so much in our modern life? And we have all this data about. Yes, of course it matters, right? How you look, and not just how you look, but that there is a definitive kind of beauty. And those people sort of ascend to the top of a status hierarchy in our culture. Well, when you look at the top of that status hierarchy, by definition, black women are not included in it. Some of our affect is often. That's why we have the Kardashians. Right. But black women themselves never ascend to the top of that beauty hierarchy in a way that they can then transform into other kinds of capital, especially economic capital. And so I think people felt really angry about this because it's one of the few areas where, for whatever reason, our radical feminist politics doesn't like to go. I mean, we've created big beauty industry like the economic model of like buying makeup and high heels and all of that. But no, I mean the aesthetics of what you look like, your hair type, your skin tone. Your eye color, your body shape, we know those things matter. And yet somehow when we sort of slide into that critique, feminist politics tend to get a little wiggly, right? We get a little jittery uh, because it feels too much about critiquing people's preferences. And there's nothing more American than our preferences, (laughs) right? Almost in a weird way, I think, going at the very heart of the American ideology that says you can make yourself over into everything, into anything, which is true in every case, except beauty. Beauty is actually one thing you can't make yourself over into beauty and white people. And there's a reason why that's true for those two things, because those two things are deeply intertwined with each other. Um, And so I think it just sort of, it makes people feel hopeless and helpless and we really don't like that. We really like to think we can work our way out of every out of everything or anything. And yeah, so I got it from women and from men, black women, white women, Hispanic. But I got it from everybody. But I also got tons of letters, especially from younger black women who felt liberated. You know, like this finally explains what I have felt. I'm not crazy. That's the refrain I get over and over again in letters and in comments. I just got it a couple of days ago. I did a lecture and a group of young black women come up to me and they go, We're not crazy. And I said, No, honey, you're not crazy. The world really is doing this to you. It's a real, really, you know, it's a really brutal form of gaslighting that we do to black women.
0: Yeah. There's a there's a line in the essay that says beauty's ultimate function is to exclude blackness. And I couldn't help think about Brittany Cooper's book, Eloquent Rage, uh-huh. and her analysis yeah. of beauty in the context of the patriarchy and how, like, yeah. you know, white women are the ideal trophies and that often excludes mm-hmm. black women and uh, and different things. And I, I thought that those those concepts tied just Absolutely. so well together and it just really stuck in my mind. And this is one of the essays I read twice because <laughs> – uh, it's just one of those things like I need to start this immediately over. And I actually got the audiobook. Oh. Oh, thank you. That was fun. Thanks. I I really enjoy it. I love it when, you know, writers read their own books. But um yeah, there's just so much in this essay. And we have so many other questions that we would love to ask you, but we're running out of time. So we thought we would ask you a few closing questions. So we wanted to ask you, uh, what are some books by women writers that you would recommend maybe that are also on some of the similar topics or maybe just something you've been reading recently that you've really enjoyed?
2: Uh, let's see. So I just read a book called in uh, that actually dovetails with some of what I d- discuss in my book and one of the essays in my book uh, by Tina Sachs. It's called Invisible Visits, um, Black Middle Class Women in the American Healthcare System. And it's this wonderful book that follows middle class women trying to get basic healthcare one of the weird paradoxes of the way we think about race and class in this country is that black people are actually studied a lot by way of studying poverty though. (laughs) Like where we know less, you know, right, but we know less about what happens to black women and black people um, when they're not um, poor um, or certainly the poorest among us. Right. And so she follows middle-class women. And part of her argument is um, that class doesn't protect us. These women have all of the economic means, all the status symbols, and a healthcare system still only understands how to treat them if they assume that they are poor. And that comes with a lot of negative assumptions that negatively impact the kind of healthcare you get, even when you're paying for the best healthcare. So these are black middle class women so going to like the best doctors, you know. Some other books by women that I have read lately, um, uh that I have greatly enjoyed. Uh I would be wrong if I didn't point out my uh friend uh Roxanne Gay has a wonderful collection um about rape culture that mm-hmm. um and by wonderful I mean difficult to read but important, I think. And let me see, what else if I loved lately? Um Oh, there's a, a Morgan Jenkins book, of course, um, mm-hmm. that I greatly enjoyed. I would, um, And there are like actually several young Black women who I'm just super excited about. Um, Ashley Ford has a book coming out uh, that I think is going to be very exciting. I think there are a lot of young Black women who are just sort of taking, you know, where people like Brittany and myself sort of leave off and are just going... Um, you know, 10 steps ahead of that, and I, you know, I tend to think of them as the young guns, and I think they're um, amazing role models for the rest of us. Eve Ewing um, has both an academic book about inequality and education, but also a wonderful collection um, of poetry. Um, I don't read comic books, but you should also know she's also uh, writing uh, a Marvel comic book, Um, and I hate to admit it, but I don't like books with pictures, Um,
1: but I love her poetry collection. (laughs) Completely understandable.
2: Uh, Sadia Hartman has a new book out called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Um, uh, that is about black women in the 19th, early 20th century in, you know, how they build sort of their political philosophy and how they've sort of been erased for, from the archives that I think is uh, pretty amazing. Okay. Uh, the in the World According to Fanny Davis is Bridget Davis's book about her mom being a Detroit numbers runner, which is actually a cross between a social history and a bit of a like popular sociology book, but really well-written.
1: Those are some amazing women and we will be sure to link to their books in our show notes. Uh, we also like to ask, too, is there anything that you're working on now or anything coming out soon that you would like our listeners to be aware of?
2: So, yes. Yeah, so I'm reading tons of stuff because I'm doing lots of reviewing and talking to people these days um, and thinking about expanding, actually, in some ways, the essay about beauty, the, the one you had to read twice. I still think mm-hmm. stuff left unsaid, believe it or not. And I want to think I think I'm writing a fuller treatment of that with both, uh, you know, a very U.S. lens, but I also, for the first time, really want to push myself to think about, you know, other countries and other cultures, you know, there are Black people all over the world. And so I want to think about that. Um, And so I've been thinking about that a ton. And the way I'm thinking about it now is going to sound really funny, but it makes sense to me. You'll just have to trust me. But I'm like, you know, there's this whole global economy about how Black women get their hair done. And I think I want to are there. That's going to be my way in. Right, how do we get our hair done all over the world? Um, and what, how technology has changed it and how much money is there, but how little um, investment is there. And so I, I think I'm going to start the conversation that way. And I am working on, um, my other big project is actually not a book, um, but it is a new podcast with my friend Roxanne Gay and I. We are in the final stages. Actually, we're all, both a little bit like chickens with our head cut off right now, because we're in the final days of putting that together um, and getting the launch together over the next couple of weeks. Um, so
0: that's what I'm working on. Oh my goodness. I'm well, so excited. Like I'm, my, my brain just imploded. <laughs> I literally like put my hands to my face and like a silent scream. Did like, I bury the
2: lead a little baby? It's me. Oh my goodness. I'm <laughs> yeah. imploding yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. We made a joke about a podcast six months ago and here we are.
1: That's wonderful. We, we, Oh, man, that's amazing. Weird. Well, we will definitely be looking out for that, and we'll promote it to everyone we know. Um, okay. to make thank sure they listen. you so much. But thank you so much, Tressie, for coming on the, our podcast and talking to us. Um, we really enjoy talking to you, so thank you.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for reading the book and for choosing to talk about it. Kendra and Autumn, I had a great time. Thank you.
0: We'd like to thank HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. Definitely check out all of their information in our show notes. We'd also like to thank Tressie McMillan-Cottom for talking to us about her essay collection, Thick, and other essays, which is out now from the new press. You can find Tressie on her website, thickthebook.com, and of course, all of Tressie's information will be linked down in our show notes.
1: We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. As always, you can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KDWinchester Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening to Reading Women, and we will talk to you again soon.